Welcome back to Distinct Nostalgia. We've lots of great interviews, reunions and documentaries lined up for you for the rest of 2023. And we're making a return now with a special series of interviews with some greats of British film and TV. First up, giving a lovely insight into the life of her iconic mum, Dame Thora Heard, as well as an illustrious career of her own, is 60s film star Jeanette Scott. And this is part two of that three-part chat. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Well, Janet, of course, there's a lot to your career um, and there's an American side as well as a British side. And we'll talk in a bit about uh, the fact that you went to America and uh, acted in quite a few films there. Uh, But before we go any further, am I right in saying that you completed your autobiography, Act One, at the age of 14? Yes, yes. (laughs) Gosh, how dare I? Believe me, there's a lot of photographs in that book. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, I also, goodness me, for that there used to be many uh, magazines about show business and films and film stars and things. And there was one, a very well-known one called Picture Goer. And I wrote a, a weekly article in that for... Oh, a year or more uh, as a teenager, you know, which was good for them because I really was looking at the world as a teenager, you know, be it fashion or first makeups or what to do with your hair or who I'd met or, you know, famous people or uh, Lonnie Donegan and his skiffle group. I'm actually. I am one of the background voices on Cumberland Gap, which was one of the famous Lonnie Donegan records. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I was filming um, The Devil's Disciple, again at Elstree, that was with an amazing cast of uh, Bert Lancaster, uh, Kirk Douglas and Laurence Olivier. And I drove, uh, uh, he only told me afterwards, but I drove Laurence Olivier absolutely mad by playing Lonnie Donegan records in my dressing room because our dressing rooms were side by side. And poor Larry Olivier could hear Lonnie Donegan through the wall over and over again. Well, tell us a little bit about that film, because that's a film that actually introduced you to American audiences. That's right, isn't it? The Devil's Disciple, yes. Uh, once again, it was a film that I was extremely lucky to to get. I tested for it a couple of times, and um, uh, they'd also done some tests in America uh, of actresses for the part, including Shirley MacLaine, who I met years later, and she said, you got that part in The Devil's Disciple, and I wanted that. <laughs> um, so I was very delighted to have got it. Uh, and I think a great deal of my getting it was because I I did have a, a good sense of comedy timing. And although The Devil's Disciple is not 
uh, an out loud chuckle of a film in any way, shape or form, uh, having been written by George Bernard Shaw. My particular character was a, a really silly young woman and, uh, and I was pretty good at playing a silly young woman. <laughs> and that got you known in America, didn't it really? I suppose it did. I suppose it did, yes. Um, and indeed, they uh, hecked Hill Lancaster, the, the company who'd made the film. Oh, can I have a sip of that, Ashley? Looks good. <laughs> uh, for those who are listening to this by sound only, Ashley is drinking a large cup of, is it tea or coffee? Tea, a good brew, a dark good brew. So the Devil's Disciple, yes, it did get me known in America. Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster had a running joke uh, because uh, I was, how old would I have been, 19 when I made it? Something like that. Uh, they would call me the veteran all the time because I had made more films than they had put together. <laughs> and yes, it, it, it got me known in America. It was a, a they had wanted me, Hectil Lancaster, the company, had wanted to put me under contract and do some more films with me, but I was already under contract to ABC, ABPC, and uh, I couldn't get out of that contract. So I was with uh, ABPC until I was 21, when legally I had to re-sign the contract uh, officially as a, a grown-up adult person myself and that is when I stepped aside from that contract because I, I realized that uh, there were quite a few things I ha would have wanted to do that I didn't do um, because they had made all the decisions for me as to whether they would loan me out for various films. Well, Kurt Douglas and Burt Lancaster, of course, huge stars. What was it like working with them? Kirk was a delight, a hard worker, um, various times. But by that time, I was pretty good at looking after myself and uh, pretty good at saying to uh, co-stars and the like, uh, listen, we're here professionally. Let let's have a great friendship professionally <laughs> and uh, and once once that had occurred they were absolutely great as i say kirk was really good to work with um he was at the time working very hard to try and get money together to make spartacus which he did just after that and indeed took larry olivier laurence olivier into the cast of spartacus uh too um uh, but lancaster was very polite and and friendly but not uh I, I didn't i can't say i honestly looked forward to being with him on the set every day which is a shame because as a tiny tot i had had a big crush on him when he played the pirate in whatever it was um, and so I, I, I was a bit disappointed that I couldn't be more of a, uh, 
a friend to Bert. Uh, but Kirk was fantastic. What about Larry Olivier? Did he become a friend? Uh, yeah, not not a close friend because we didn't have that many scenes together. So I only met him on odd occasions uh, when he came in for filming. Of course, he was more of a friend of my mother because she was in uh, The Entertainer, for instance, playing Shirley Ann Field's bitchy mother. <laughs> um, uh, she gave a wonderful performance in that. And... Uh, by the way, The Entertainer, which I think was maybe Laurence Olivier's best film, really, if you put the Shakespearean films to one side, um, was shot in the old royalty theatre in Morecambe, which unfortunately now it was pulled down and made into the Arndale shopping centre. But the Royalty Theatre Morecambe that my grandfather was the manager of. So there's all sorts of strange tie-ups with the, with that film and, um, and Morecambe indeed, again. And of course a fantastic film, one of the classics really. Mm. Yeah, it is. Mm. You said that Bert Lancaster and Kirk Douglas were running after you around the set as it were. You actually did become entangled uh, in a relationship with your first husband, Jackie Ray, didn't you? I did. He was uh, a producer of television shows in Canada and had been brought over here, I think, by ITV, perhaps, to um, be like a quiz master on a couple of quiz shows here. Well, of course, at that time, there was a connection, wasn't there, between Canada and Britain when it comes to television, because... Uh, the two Bernstein brothers who created Granada Television were, of course, uh, Canadian. Oh, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. Then in that case, I, I'm guessing that I am correct in thinking that uh, that's why they brought Jackie over. But, of course, when I met him, uh, my great interest in Jackie was the fact that he was an ex-Spitfire pilot and had... Um, uh, flown in uh, the Battle of Britain and so forth, and he'd got the DFC and bar. So as much as he was wonderful and a lovely person, I was marrying my hero. <laughs> and uh, that was very easy and very pleasurable to do, I assure you. We remained friends, although obviously we did divorce. And uh, we remained friends until I, I sadly learned of his death back in Canada. Yeah, that's a, a portion of my life that I look on with great happiness, but realised I was way too young and also realised I had married a hero, someone who couldn't possibly live up to my idea of what they should be. <laughs> Everyone's life, of course, is littered with these kind of stories, isn't it, really? Of course. Although, you know what, Ashley, I think these days we are far easier at understanding people's mistakes than we ever were in those days. I know I remember my divorce to 
from Jackie Ray. We separated and then got a separation divorce, which in those days you had to be separated for seven years before you could do it. Um, and it was the first divorce ever in my family. And it was really hard for my parents to come to grips with the fact that there was a divorce in the family. Because as a woman, I think particularly, if you'd made your bed, you'd better lie in it, you know. So, so that was quite heart-wrenching all the way around, really. It was definitely a stigma, wasn't there? I mean, I was born in 1972, and um, my mum and dad uh, weren't married, and I actually went, being, I think, six months after um, being born, I was at their wedding day. <laughs> um, and, of course, I would have been labelled at that time a little bastard because I was born out of wedlock, you know. Absolutely. Oh, I, I know. I know. I mean, it's staggering now that uh, this, this current uh, generation think once, twice, three, four times uh, before getting married and then maybe don't, <laughs> you know, and it's totally accepted by us and, and children from those uh, friendships, liaisons, partnerships loves uh, are totally accepted as indeed they should be by um society but you know in my lifetime i'm 81 now and ashley you're a, a mere child compared to me uh the difference in society and the things we accept totally as we should um the also, the, the terrific situation of, of uh, women now really being more on equal footing in, in business and, and careers, it's quite wonderful, but amazing at how quickly society and this generation have moved on and accepted. As I say, I'm all for all of it. It's just staggering at how quickly it has been accepted. And uh, I, I know that it's difficult for a lot of old people. I'm lucky I was in show business and we never saw, we never saw color, we never saw prejudice, we never saw sexual orientation because it was show business and everyone was accepted. But what a blessing that was to be in that world. And I do really understand how difficult it must be for particularly people of my generation uh, and even a tiny bit younger, um, how difficult it is for them to change what is an attitude that one has grown up with. One, what is that great song in, in South Pacific, you've got to be carefully taught? Because no child is born with any prejudice. It has to come from the society you are in, your parents, their, your family, their friends. And it's, um, it's, it's quite wonderful and amazing. Indeed. And um, I suppose, in a way, you and your mum were quite unusual in the sense that you both had these careers that were running uh, alongside each other. Your mum, of course 
yes, she had particular types of parts she was playing for quite a long time, but she managed to adapt herself and survive. But that doesn't always happen, does it? Often with female actors and actresses, um, things get in the way, like ageism and other issues. Well, that, that's what I was saying. My mother had been playing old people from when she was discovered in repertory in the Royalty Theatre Morecambe by George Formby, who saw her in a play uh, with, as she said, she used to have tram lines of makeup to make her look old on her face, across her forehead and around her mouth and under her eyes and things. And he brought her, it was through him, that she came down and was put under contract to Ealing Studios, who immediately took a film uh, test of her, realized there was no way she could play his mother in a film because the film camera does not lie and she was a young woman, but kept her under contract as playing characters but couldn't, she couldn't play the film, the part that George Formby actually had her brought down to London for. Whereas I was blessed in the other way, the other side of the coin. I was growing up in a studios that thank goodness, whether they had learned their lesson by seeing other child performance, performers uh, in America, particularly where child performers were, they worked hard at keeping them young and having them continue to play child parts. I was so lucky that they, they always cast me in roles that were of the age I was. So, for instance, at 16, I got my first screen kiss in a film called Now and Forever. Uh, and so forth. So I literally grew up on the screen and it was no great shock to any audience, I might sound big headed, who might have been watching my career. It was no shock to them to see me growing up because I had grown up before their eyes. And so who was the lucky recipient of that first kiss? Uh, a Canadian called Vernon Gray. Once again, many people were, were tested for the part, including Brian Forbes, the actor, who not only went on to produce and direct some excellent films with um, uh, Richard Attenborough, like Seance on a Wet Afternoon and... Uh, um, I think he did he do Oh What a Lovely War and uh, he did lots of things with, with Richard Attenborough but then went on to become head of the studios in America of I think 20th Century Fox. He was head of the studios for a while there. But he didn't get the part although he gave an excellent test because the studios discovered after he had done the test uh, this is the film was giving me my first screen kiss. They discovered he was a divorced man. Once again, we bring up the change in attitudes. These days, it wouldn't make any difference what he was off screen if he was giving a good performance on screen. But that 
excluded him as far as giving Jeanette Scott her first screen kiss. So Vernon Gray, the Canadian, got it. And uh, it was a very nice film. It, it, uh, it won quite a few awards uh, in other countries at film festivals and things. Was, um, with Mario Zampi directed it. Now, tell us about the Day of the Triffids. <laughs> Day of the Triffids was made starring Howard Keel and Nicole Moray. was made in Europe. Uh, the um, indoor scenes were shot in Boreham Wood, Elstree in Britain and some outdoor scenes were shot in France. Finished, edited, sent to America because it was an American film. And the powers that be sat in the screening room, watched it and said, well, it was meant to be a horrible film and that's what it is, horrible. And they decided they couldn't show it and they had to do something to liven it up a bit. So I can't remember who, that this is awful, I should remember the name, uh, a writer, and Freddie Francis, a lovely, lovely man. He won an Oscar for uh, lighting camera work and then started directing and I had just done a couple of films for him. Freddie Francis and this writer, whose name I embarrassingly forget, went away for a few weeks, wrote a whole sequence that took place in a lighthouse uh, that would slot in to this rather pathetic film that had been made, all about Triffids on this lighthouse, taking over the world. Freddie Francis, telephoned me. I was just visiting my mother who was doing a summer season at Blackpool with Arthur Askey and the Grand Theatre. And I said, hello, Freddie. And he said, can you come down and give me about four or five weeks shooting a strange film? <laughs> I said, well, but I've only just arrived up here. I'm visiting. He said, oh, come on, Scotty, do me a favor, come down. So I said, well, what am I doing? He said, Kieran Moore is going to be in it with you. And he's a fine actor. By the way, I went on to do a couple of other films with Kieran and he was a lifelong friend. So I said, oh, all right, Freddie, I will. Uh, came down, met Kieran, went in the lighthouse, did four or five weeks of... Uh, shooting with, with these amazing triffids, including one that we called Blodwin, who was radio controlled, and the rotten so-and-sos would creep up with Blodwin behind me on the set, and Blodwin would put out one of her awful triffid hands over my shoulder and scare me to death. <laughs> anyway, we did the whole sequence in the lighthouse and it saved the film and if you would believe it day of the triffids to this day uh is shown 
constantly on horror channels. I've been doing a, um, a recording for a short film that is going to be uh, added to uh, a restoration print of Day of the Triffids. Uh, that's being shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's becoming a strange cult film. I don't know how many people laugh at it or how many people are genuinely scared by it, but I am absolutely delighted that it's still going strong. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there is some weird films, isn't there? I mean, there's another one called The Birds. You remember The Birds, The Birds? You remember that one? It's still scary to watch, actually, but then you, you look a bit more deeply and you can see all the, all the string, you know. <laughs> oh, I, I thought Hitchcock used real birds in The Birds. As a matter of fact, I think he was uh, rather unfeeling about the poor birds in The Birds. <laughs> but that's another story and I don't know the truth of it. <laughs> Well, we'll move on from there. So on this theme of sort of surreal things, um, you've also got a connection to the Rocky Horror Show, haven't you? Is that right? I am actually mentioned in the opening song of the Rocky Horror Show. So once again, although I am here and living in a village in south, the south of England, in a, a lovely, quiet village, my name is being sung all over the world. There are productions of the Rocky Horror Show all over the world, Berlin, Los Angeles, sometimes Las Vegas, New York. I mean, you name it, and the Rocky Horror Show is showing somewhere. And in every opening song, they talk about Jeanette Scott being chased by a triffid. And so uh, my name liveth forever. <laughs> they, they don't talk about me saving the world and cracking the world or any of those, but the Triffids lives on. <laughs> and in the third and final part of my interview with Jeanette Scott, we'll be hearing all about her marriage to Mel Torme and, of course, more about her mum, Dame Thora Heard. And don't forget, there's over 200 hours of great interviews, reunions, documentaries, as well as new comedy and drama on distinct nostalgia. Just scroll back through our archive wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.